0: Databases are great at storing data, storing what happened, when it happened, who done it, that kind of thing. Traditionally, they're not so great at saying, this is what's happening right now. If you've got breaking news, your user wants to order a taxi right now, your customer is trying to send you money right now, but that process is failing. Those are really useful things to know as they happen but most databases aren't built with liveness in mind. They're generally built on a theory that says, first you store the data, later you can query it out. Very useful, but missing that piece of newness. And that's where today's topic comes in. We're going to take a look at Debezium. It's a tool that can tap into a huge number of existing databases and capture that sense of what's happening to them right now and turn it into live notifications, real-time analytics, even just ferrying the data to other systems in a hurry. You can use it from Mongo to Kafka, or from Oracle to Kinesis, or MySQL to Google PubSub, all kinds of options. And one of the things I think makes it particularly interesting is it's minimally invasive. You can have an existing data model and an existing database, maybe even a legacy database, you can't touch. And yet you can still use Debezium to tap into that stream of data and make it valuable. So I think it's worth learning about. And to learn about it, we've got in an expert. We've got Gunnar Mauling. He's the former project lead for Debezium, and he's now a Debezium and Flink expert over at Decodable. And he's going to take us through what Debezium can do for you, what it demands of you, and how the whole architecture fits together. So let's get stuck in. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices, and today's voice is Gunnar Morling.
1: Gunnar, how's it going? Hey, Chris. Um, yeah, all is good. Thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Me too. Your, um, your, your name, well, the name of your project was
0: dropped in a recent podcast. We had an aside talking about Debezium. Mm-hmm. So I thought, let's get you in for a proper deep dive into what the heck it is. Okay, yeah, that sounds good. A- and you've probably got as good qualifications as anyone on the planet for this. You were the project lead for Debezium for a number of years, right?
1: Right. Um, While I was at Red Hat, I was the project lead for about five years or so. Um, Yes, starting in 2017 all the way up to last year. Yes, I spearheaded the project and... um, yeah, experienced quite a few interesting things during the time. <laughs> we'll get into all of that. Well, it's maybe that sounds more um, mystique than it is, but yeah. It was a well, fun time.
0: Yeah. Do you know, sometimes programming isn't a glamorous job. We have to do everything right. we can to evoke some
1: mystique. Right? <laughs> exactly. Oh me, I can tell you about things, you know. Yeah. Oh, don't ask me. <laughs> I mean I cannot talk about everything, but you know. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so let's get let's get more brass tacks about this. First up, what is Debezium? Why does it need to exist?
1: Well, what it is, uh, it's a solution for change data capture. So in the simplest uh, terms, it's about getting notifications out of your database, like Postgres or MySQL or SQL Server or any you know, quite a few more, whenever something has changed, like something gets inserted, something gets updated, or something got deleted, you want to be notified about this event and then make sense out of that information, right? So you would like to maybe update or invalidate a cache, put the data into a search index. Um, But in a nutshell, it's about reacting to changes in a database and telling the outside world about it. Okay. First dumb question. Why isn't that just a database trigger? Why is that just not a database uh, trigger? I mean, yes, triggers can actually be one way for implementing change data capture, and we can talk about you know all the pros and cons. Um, one of the things to keep in mind, the trigger would sit on the right path of your transactions, right? So that would be some sort of, um, performance implication. Various. what Debezium does is it's, uh, what's called log-based change data capture. So this is an asynchronous process, which essentially tails the transaction log of the database. Um, so it's, you know, very reliable, very robust. It doesn't sit in the right path. And then, of course, by going through something like Kafka, it gives you connectivity with all those kinds of sync systems. And I guess my question would be, how would you do this with a trigger, right? So how uh, could you send a rest request there or send a message uh, to Kafka? Um, I guess it would be a bit of a stretch to do that with uh, triggers.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of asked the question in a provoking way, but I think one of the issues... And I totally
1: fell for it. <laughs> you did, you did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll throw in, I mean, the right path is a big thing. It does block how long it takes the transaction to complete. The other one is, I think triggers really work when you're staying within the database. But when exactly you want to right. get outside, that's a big issue. Exactly right. But I'm cheating. I can't like throw you questions and then answer them for, half answer them for you. <laughs> okay, I'll try better next time. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. We'll we'll ramp it up. We'll ramp it up as we go. So um so okay, you're trying why why are people trying to capture change as it happens? Because that doesn't seem like a normal thing to do in a relational database model.
1: Mm, okay, so that's that's a good one. I mean, I think there's tons of motivations for, for doing that. And I mean, we can talk about use cases all, all day long, but I would say in the, in the, um, the most common one I would say is just replication in the widest sense. And maybe not, you wouldn't necessarily use it if you want to, you know, replicate your data from one Postgres instance to another Postgres instance. Then I guess you would just use the tools which come with your database, but you maybe you want to take your data out of your operational database into a data warehouse, something like Snowflake. Or, you know, a real-time analytics store or something like Apache Pino or a search index. So you want to cross the vendor boundaries. Or maybe you have a production Oracle database and now you want to put this data for offline analysis into a Postgres instance, right? So uh, replicating across all those vendor and system boundaries, that's definitely, I would say, a, a super common use case, just taking data from one database to another or data warehouse on the SYNC side of um, sorts. Um, So that's replication in the wider sense, but then there is like um, cache updates, cache invalidation. So maybe you would like to have a read view of your data, which sits close to the user, and maybe it has some sort of denormalized representation of your data model. So you need to keep this in sync, of course, with your operational database. And then reacting to those change events um, is the perfect way for keeping that cache in sync with your operational database. Do you know, that reminds me of a project
0: I worked on that had exactly this issue Mm -hmm. that we wanted to, um, and we ended up doing SQL polling, which was not ideal. mm -hmm. There was a mechanism in Postgres, I remember, that would let you watch a table and get notifications. Uh but If your connection to that session dropped... It lost then your you place loo- in exactly, the stream. Of yes,
1: beta. yes, yeah. I think you're referring to uh, the Listen Notify API. Listen in Notify. Yes, I am. Yeah, and um, yes, exactly. It it kind of lets you that uh, do that thing. But as you say, if you don't have, uh, if your client isn't running, you wouldn't be notified about anything which happens during that time. Whereas, um, you know, with this log-based approach, all this is like fully reliable, fully safe. So essentially, if the Debezen would restart after such a downtime, then it would uh, continue to read the transaction log from exactly the point in time where it left off before. So it stores essentially like the position in the transaction log. How far did I get? And then if it gets restarted, it will continue from there and you will not miss any change. Right. So maybe we should just quickly
0: dive into that to make sure everyone's on the same page. So modern database, every time it makes a change, it writes that data to uh, a change log, partly for recovery, but also to hook in standby databases.
1: Right, exactly. Those are exactly, I would say, the two reasons for a database to have a transaction log. A, as you say, transaction recovery. So, you know, if something crashes, the server, I don't know, loses power um, while some t- transaction is running, then it will be able to go back to a consistent state after restarting. And then, yes, you would also, or you could use those transaction locks to keep your replicas in a database cluster in sync and in, in that sense the is acting like uh, like kind of a replication client right it gets hold of this replication stream of data from the transaction log and then well it keeps its own view of the data you could say does it do that by like
0: sneaking in around the side and reading the same binary file or is there some api that say postgres or MicroSQL are providing that you hook into
1: Right. So it depends a lot between the different databases uh, which Debeezoom supports. So there is, unfortunately, I would say there is no standardized API or standardized way for, you know, so we could implement Debeezoom once and be done. Um, Instead, it's a, you know, a bespoke effort for each and every kind of database. So in case of um, MySQL and Postgres, for instance, yes, there is essentially, uh, you know, remote... Protocols, let's say, so you establish a connection to a database and then this will give you like a callback or will notify you whenever there's like a new event in the transaction log. So you can just be any kind of remote client for other databases, let's say SQL Server. Uh, this gives you essentially a view of the transaction log in forms of what they call CDC tables. So change their capture tables. In that case, the Beesum goes to those tables and queries them. Um, for Cassandra again, then, you know, we need to actually have a component which runs on the actual Cassandra host. So we can go to the actual transaction log files on the file system and uh, get hold of them. So it differs uh, between all the connectors, but then the format which the Bism exposes, that's, you know, one unified and abstract format. So the users then don't have to care about all those uh, nitty-gritty details.
0: So you are in those, you're in one of those situations where this is horrible. Every vendor has a different standard. We shall create one new standard and then do all the work.
1: Right, yes, ex- ex- exactly. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> the, the challenge. And, um, you know, I would say it's a bit of a long tail, of course, of uh, connectors. So every now and then, you know, people come to the DB2 community and they say, hey, we would like to have support for DB2 on the mainframe. Can you make it happen? Um Okay, <laughs> and then, you know, the, the project needs to weigh, of course. So is this like a common thing or how feasible is it? Terms of DB2 and the mainframe. So how would you even go and test this? Because I mean, I don't. Oh, nobody in the DB2 community has a mainframe under their desk. So how do you even develop this kind of thing? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's the challenge. But then on the upside, it, it, you know, the project does this sort of unification effort. So as I mentioned, the format which it, which it exposes to users, this is abstract and generic. I would say it's kind of a de facto standard, which um, it managed to establish. It's funny how
0: in our industry, it's only the de facto standards that actually seem to work. <laughs> and the ones where three large vendors get together and announce it, apart from SQL, maybe, it
1: will seem to flounder. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there were some initiatives around having a CDC standard, but it didn't really go anywhere um, so far. And I mean, this kind of, with Debezium, it kind of naturally happened. Just vendors would... You know, announce their support for the Debezium change event format. So let's say, um, ScyllaDB, um, you know, they developed their CDC connector for, for their ScyllaDB, um, database using the Debezium connector framework. Um, and now they also support the Debezium uh, change event format and then also all kinds of, um, you know, consumers of those change events—they also support this format, something like uh, Flink SQL or um, let's say Materialize. They actually uh, you know, natively support the Debezium change event format. So it, this de facto standard thing just kind of happened. Yeah, de facto, I guess.
0: <clears throat> okay, give me an idea of what that standard looks like. Then, um, you know, if I do uh, if I do an update on a user's email address right. in Postgres, what's going to happen on the Debezium side?
1: Right. So, in terms of the event format, mostly it is about the uh, so the, the schema d- resembles the schema of your tables. So, let's say you know you have this customer table with your email address column and you have five other columns. Well, then your change events they would have uh, those six fields representing those those columns by default. I mean, you can you know you can override, configure, filter everything, but by default it would be that. And then in case of an update, well, you would have the uh, Previous day of this row and the new state of this row. So you would see, okay, email changed from, I don't know, chris at example.com to chrisjenkins at example.com. So you would see all the new value again, depending on how you have configured your transaction log. Maybe, you know, you want to save some space there. So you don't have the old value, but that's the challenge of it. So that's the actual structure. The it resembles your table structure. And then there's, um, a large chunk of metadata also part of it. So like timestamps, uh, what kind of event position in the transaction log, the offset in case of uh, MySQL, for instance, it can also tell you what was the query which was triggering this change. So you could oh. identify that. Um, so, all, so you could use that for metadata.
0: analytics as well.
1: Yes, for right. Analyzing so for instance, how your
0: database is used. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you could. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Okay. Um, and what's the, in that format, if I've got like, 10 columns in my table and I just mm-hmm. update the email address, do I get the whole of the previous row and the whole of the new row? And can I te- And do I get something saying, but it was just this
1: column that changed? So you would, by default, get the whole row um, for for most of the connectors. So for instance, in case of MongoDB and I think Cassandra as well, then you actually just would get any modified columns for, but otherwise you would get the whole, um, at least the, the whole new row. Row for Postgres for instance, people typically don't expose the entire old row, but of course, just it would take too much uh, state uh, or space in the transaction log. Okay, but would but I also be charges.
0: told which of those fields in the new row changed, or do I have to in- infer that?
1: You would co- infer that just by comparing uh, old old and new value. Yes. Okay. 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 So I've s- I think actually it makes sense. um Again, I feel like you'll trigger me, but <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I think it's my job in a way. <laughs> <yeah>, I guess <laughs> I feel it makes sense to have this as the default because not every sync system supports what we would call partial updates, right? So you, I guess you have to work from the assumption, okay, I only can write like entire records on, on the sync site, at least yeah. as a safe default. And then of course, if you have a smarter system, it will be able to you know, just apply partial updates. But I feel uh, in the grand scheme of things, Giving you the large, the entire event, this this kind of makes sense. Also, if you just look at it from, instance, uh, from the point of view of having data just in Kafka, and then you would be able just to go to the latest change event for a given record, and this would tell you, okay, this is the state of the world at this particular point in time for this record. Okay, you've that raises a much bigger issue.
0: I'm going to get to into in a minute but okay. you've just mentioned Kafka for the second time. Does using Debezium imply you'll be using Kafka?
1: No, that's a good question. I, I guess I should have mentioned that. Um, so it does not require it. Most of the times people use Debezium with Apache Kafka as the messaging fabric or messaging layer. So you know they they can connect it to all kinds of sync systems. And this is also historically speaking how Debezium started. So essentially it's a family Anyway, it's more than that. But at the core, it's a family of Kafka Connect source connectors. So they are about taking data from the external system, all those databases into Kafka. But then, (coughs) sorry, we realized over time, or we just got the feedback. So people liked the functionality which Debezium provided. So all the CDC goodness. But then not everybody necessarily is on Kafka, right? So maybe they're using something like um, AWS Kinesis or Google Cloud PubSub oh, as okay. managed infrastructures, or maybe they use Apache Pulsar, Nuts, all kinds of things, Redis streams. And they still would like to use the Debezium uh, change event capability, change stream capabilities. And this led essentially to the introduction of what we call Debezium Server. And this oh, okay. one is, you know, a runtime you could in the overall architecture, you could compare it to Kafka Connect. So it's the runtime for the connectors. But now this Dbisim server project gives you connectivity with everything but Kafka. So you can use this to send events to all the things I mentioned and quite a few more. Um, So that's the second way for using Dbisim. And then there's even a third one. And this is about uh, embedding it as a library into your Java application. So if you are a Java developer or a developer on the JVM and you have very bespoke needs, then you can use this Debezium engine uh, component and essentially just register a callback method. And then this will be invoked whenever a change event comes in. And you can do whatever you want uh, to do, right? And this is uh, typically what integrators of dbism do, like Flink CDC is a great example. So they take Im- the Debezium embedded engine, then they expose this straight into a Flink pipeline or a Flink job without having to go through something like Kafka.
0: Okay. So if I was, if I was in that situation where I'm trying to invalidate a Java cache based on changes in the database, would I probably just go that route?
1: Right. I think, um, I, I again, I guess it depends, but let's say you have an in-memory cache. Um, yeah, I guess that would be uh, the, the simplest way of, of doing that, right? I mean, now there's the question, okay, so application clustered and is it like, you know, uh, scaled out? Then, do you have this invalidation callback in each of your nodes or do you need to sync this invalidation message yourself? But yeah, that would be one way for doing that.
0: You can always tell when you're speaking to an expert programmer because they start with, it depends. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like I should prefix every second answer with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we'll, we'll can't take that as red, But
0: <laughs> Okay, so that seems like an awfully huge amount of work. Right, Right. Here. Go for that project. And one of the things I instantly wonder is, like, are you are you doing things like you've got a connector to Cassandra that has to be written in Java, and you've got another connector for Postgres
1: that has to be mm-hmm. written in C? And how many languages are involved in BG? So it's mostly really Java. Uh, so just by virtue of being based on Kafka Connect, uh, uh, the connectors are implemented in in, in Java. There's a little C component indeed for for Postgres because uh, in Postgres the way it works there, there there's this notion of logical decoding and logical decoding plugins, which essentially control the format in which you receive those change events from Postgres over this remote connection. And um, so for the longest time, and And it's still the case to Beesum had its own logical decoding plugin which amidst those change events. Uh, in the Google Protocol Buffer format, so an efficient binary representation. So that's the little C code there is. By now, I also should say as of Postgres 10, um, there's a default plugin PG output, which is, um, you know, coming with Postgres. It's available in all the cloud providers, like RDS, for instance. So now I would recommend people to use this logical decoding plugin PG output. But yes, still there is this uh, C-based component called decoder buffs in in the
0: okay so mostly java with a tiny bit of c yeah, exactly right that sounds i'm just trying to get
1: so, well, a. well i should actually i should also say there's also the typescript because there's debesium there's debesium ui as well so there's also a web web-based ui oh, for it okay. so you can set up things there this is it's a fair chunk of typescript okay what's the ui do um essentially it's about giving you a configuration and management experience so instead of you know as you would do it with Kafka connect like Configuring everything with JSON, Um, this gives you, like, I would say, a rather intuitive um, UI. Um, And it guides you through this process of of, uh, setting up those uh, connectors. One example, for instance, where it's really useful is um, there's this notion of inclusion and exclusion filters, which describe which kinds of tables or schemas in your database you actually would like to capture because in the transaction log, everything is contained, right? So the, all the changes to all the tables are there. But maybe you are just interested in, I don't know, capturing changes out of this one table out of your 10 tables or out of, from changes out of the 10 tables out of your 100 tables. And yeah. the way you configure this is with um, filters, which is essentially regular expressions. And now, one common thing we, uh, get, uh, you know, got asked about again and again is, "So, hey, I don't receive any changes from Debezium. What What's going on? But I know I do changes in my in my database, but nothing comes out of it. So, what's what's going on?" And very often the answer was, "Well, your filters were just wrong. So you just excluded all the tables. <laughs> right. so, so naturally, the, the connectors wouldn't uh, emit any any change event. Everything would be discarded. And now with this UI." It gives you actually a preview. So you specify your filter expressions, and then you, it will tell you, OK, based on this configuration, this is the set of tables you actually will capture. And this is a huge usability improvement.
0: OK. That makes me think, because presumably the standard change log has all the changes to the internal tables, too
1: yes um right yeah so what's the question so generally <laughs> i guess you
0: <laughs> I, I would guess generally you don't want to hook into that except maybe you want to hook into
1: create table statements i don't know can you do that uh yes so most of the times we would like to ignore any uh, internal tables uh, and then the db's with connectors they just do that by themselves so i don't know for postgres sorry for Oracle, there's, Specific schemas, I guess, even which you would like to just ignore. So they would never arrive. Uh, um, they would never be sent out to the user. As you were asking about DDL events, um, again, it depends a little bit on the connector, what it does and what the database supports. So not all of them, unfortunately, give you an event if there was a DDL change, like I do know, alter table or create table. Um, so for instance, in case of... Um, well, actually, Postgres it also it tells us that, so it there's like a special kind of event. Um, but yeah, it it depends a little bit on the on the connectors. Okay, <laughs> I'm just thinking.
0: I'm wondering about setting all this up, right? Right. And so you're saying that if I'm connecting to, for example, let's pick MySQL, right? Mm-hmm. What what you're essentially doing is hooking into MySQL's change log. API right. that they have for their replicas. and you've got replica
1: Well, there is, uh, yes, there is, there is actually a library which we use for that in case of MySQL. It's called the bin log client. So the transaction log in MySQL is called the bin log, or binary log. And there's a bin log client library um, which Debeza uses, yes.
0: I'm just thinking classic. I mean, uh, we've all fallen victim to not invented here syndrome. Mm-hmm. If I now know that the trick to Debezium is that it's kind of behaving like a special replica and the master database doesn't know any different, why would I not roll my own and get my own preferred (laughs) format for the data? (laughs) All
1: right. I mean, you totally could if you don't have anything else to do, I guess guess you could (laughs) do it. Um, I mean, there's a few things to consider. So A, it's very easy to underestimate the effort, I would say. So... You know, there's things like there's a very rich type system, for instance, in databases like Postgres. So you would have to implement support for all those potential types, which there are uh, in terms of data types. There is this entire notion of um, snapshotting, which we didn't didn't discuss at all so far. So if I go to my transaction logs, um, I won't have the transaction logs from last year, right? So if uh, or, or last month, maybe because the database, as you mentioned, it uses those for transaction recovery. and and replication, so at some point it will discard all the chunks of the transaction log because otherwise your database would just run out of disk space. Uh, now, so I've got every change, but I haven't got any starting state to apply that. Exa- exactly Here right. And, and let's say you would like to put this data into Snowflake so you can do uh, analytics. You'd, you, know, you want to start with a complete view of your data, right? You don't want just to have the data which happens to be changing right now. You would like typically to start with an entire uh, backfill of what's there. And so you would have to implement this by yourself Um, then you know there's tons of corner cases in terms of failovers and restarts and making sure you never miss any kinds of events Um, again coming to postgres uh, coming back to postgres you need to make sure like um, you acknowledge uh, the transaction log you have consumed Otherwise, the database would hold on to it for uh, forever. There's corner oh. cases there which you can get wrong. So you could sort it all out. I mean, it's software, it's all, you know, it, it's it's doable, <laughs> but I, I would really not recommend it. Um, and the other thing is, of course, um, you would miss out then on this notion of the de facto change event format, right? So you, you would come up with your own uh, event format, but then all those sync connectors which support it now, um, they wouldn't support your format right so you would have to address that concern as well
0: yeah yeah i can see that be a lot of i'm just trying to get a sense of the scope of a project like this and i think the moment you mentioned implementing the whole type universe i was right
1: <laughs> right and then you know there is so many things uh, also to consider uh, like um a to make this uh, work efficiently monitoring, uh, logging, I mean, there's, uh, you know, stories to tell about all of those things. So, I mean, yes, doing a simple POC, which, you know, p- would print out some change events you get from a database on the command line, that would be quite easy. Uh, but then like really packaging it into a, you know, production worthy system with the complete feature set, that's that's a huge task. I mean, the team has been working on this for for many years and it's not a small team as well. How how big is it? Yeah, um let me see so when I took over the project it was ex- essentially two guys uh, working it so it was myself and another Red Hat engineer. So by the way I should mention that uh, so Red Hat is the main sponsor of the project so you know the core engineers they are employed uh, by Red Hat but then there's also other companies working on connectors under the Debezium umbrella. So folks like Stripe or or, uh, Google who did their uh, connector for Cloud Spanner, they do this uh, as part of the Debezium community or Instacluster, for instance, they work on the uh, Cassandra connector nowadays. So it's quite a few companies rallying behind it. But let's say in the core team, I would say it's like seven or eight engineers um, by now, something like that.
0: I'm curious I mean, this is kind of an aside, but since you mention it,
1: I want to know what's why Stripe, why a payments service? <clears throat> that's a good question. I don't know, to be honest, what their uh, use cases. But um, if I had to guess, it would be feeding data to their analytics store. That's that's definitely a common thing. Um, mm-hmm. I know, yeah, there's organizations like Sugar CRM. They work on their um, CRM tool. They have SQL Server and um, they, you know, have tons of CDC use cases. So, for instance, they made a huge contribution towards uh, Debezium. Um, so they could enable their deployment of hundreds of uh, Debezium connectors. And, for instance, just by means of this scale of use case, the core team, you know, we don't really have the capability to test with 100 uh, databases and just getting this feedback and then also the contributions from those companies is like super valuable.
0: Okay. Yeah. I can see that once you're, I can see their use case and I can see they're large enough their use case to be, become exactly. dedicated to an entire person supporting it. Exactly.
1: Yes. yes and then they, they have, you know, this, I know this weird edge case. So yes, if we run the Debezium on 500 databases and then we do this particular thing, then it doesn't work. And Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's fix it. But there's no way in the world for how the team could, you know, get on top of that by just by themselves.
0: Yeah, yeah, five hundred. Well, five hundred machines is becoming tenable, but it's still a lot to ask of an open source project. Yeah, exactly right. right yes. <clears throat> okay, okay. In that case, let's get let's get into um, the idea of snapshotting, which you mentioned, because I mm-hmm. could see I could see my first use case for Debesium would be capturing things to send email notifications, right? Mm-hmm. And that I just need to know what happened, mm-hmm. but the analytics case. Yeah, I do need to worry about getting the whole world, which I can't get out of the changelog. How do you solve that?
1: Right. So the way it essentially works is, um, in the simplest case, it just, you know, first of all, the connector will, upon startup, it will get hold of the transaction log and it will just, um, you know, get a reference to the current position in the transaction log. Um, That's called the offset. And then it will start a snapshot transaction. So to make sure we, you know, we scan all the tables, uh, which are there. I mean, again, coming back to your filter configuration, right? So it would scan through all the tables you, you want to, to capture. You also can customize this. So let's say you work with a notion of logically. Um, deleting your data or soft deleting your data. So maybe you just want to export like your non deleted data into your uh, analytics store. So you could exclude all those, um, soft deleted records. So you can do that. And then once, um, this snapshot uh, process has completed, um, then it would start to read the transaction log from this offset, which you memorized before. So essentially, this is to make sure that there's nothing lost. In terms of changes which happened while you did uh, this this snapshot,
0: okay. So you're you're kind of pinning the transaction log, going to another window logically, and saying right. select star from users, right. exactly, and right. then coming back. Okay, Th- does that can those two run um, asynchronously? It's not not blocking anything.
1: Yes. Um, right. So d- this isn't uh, blocking anything. So for instance, Coming back to Postgres, I feel like I'm saying Postgres all the time. So let me say Postgres another time. <laughs>
0: we're, <laughs> so, we're definitely guilty on developer voices of saying Postgres to mean generic, good quality relational database.
1: Yes, exactly. And, and they just get so many things right. And, and for, also in this case, so they have this notion of expo- what they call exporting snapshots. So essentially, uh, the way it works, you create what's called the replication slots. So this is essentially a handle... To a transaction log, and this you know is a pointer to how far you have read the transaction log. So you start this replication slot. This gives you back the uh, it's a starting position, its starting offset. Now you can, uh, and and optional you also can say I would like to export this offset as a snapshot, which that means you can start a another transaction at this particular um, offset, and or oh. you could even do multiple ones. So let's say to be not quite sure whether they do it by uh, by, by now. Um, showing a bit that I've stepped down from the project, but uh, at least uh, in theory, and it totally should be the case. You could have multiple snapshot transactions all at the same offset, so you could read multiple tables or even multiple chunks concurrently, just you know to to speed up things, um, and then. Once you're done, you would uh, start to consume from this um, replication slot and you would just be sure you haven't missed anything. And also, of course, any you, new changes can come in during the time. So yes, that, that would all uh, be async.
0: Okay, so you're doing like a, almost like a point-in-time query that yes, you can e- then synchronize e- exa- on both exactly, sides. Exactly, exactly. Okay, I, um, we should link to this in the show notes, but I saw you had a talk at Current. Right, uh, which I watched him was very good about
1: how that process so is much. now being overhauled. Right, you want to say a bit about that? Tease yes. your talk. <laughs> oh yes, let's definitely talk about this notion of um, incremental snapshotting because I mean, so Debezium always had this notion of let's call it the initial snapshotting as I you know roughly described it, um, and then there were a few issues with that. Um, so, for instance, you couldn't change easily those filter configurations. So, let's say. Um, You know, you have set up your table filters in a way you capture 10 out of your 100 tables. And now there's, uh, you realize, oh, actually there's another 11th table, which I also would like to capture. So you would change the filter configuration. But then in the traditional snapshotting approach, there was no way for you to actually also capture now this 11th table and then, you know, continue to stream the changes for all the 11 tables. So this was something which just wasn't doable very well. You mentioned, uh, yes, the transaction log gets pinned during this initial snapshot. And and, uh, that's exactly right because, um, well, as we don't consume from the transaction log while this uh, snapshot is running, it would you know, use more and more disk space while this traditional snapshot is being executed. So you're Again, saying freeze that point in the transaction right, log while right. I select
0: star from 10 if, tables. Exactly. And that and, can get big. Yeah.
1: And that can be big. I mean, the snapshot can run for multiple hours or many hours if, if you have a large amount of data. Um, so that's, that's maybe not desirable. Then, you know, sometimes people just want to re-snapshot a specific table. I know maybe they have like, Deleted their Kafka topic accidentally. Yeah. Should happen. Or maybe they just want to like backfill a new a sync system. They, they stand up. Um, so they would like to re snapshot specific set of tables. And this wasn't something which was doable. And all this is now supported with the notion of incremental snapshotting. I'm not sure whether we, can, we should go or can go into details, uh, but essentially it interleaves inter the events you get from the uh, snapshotting phase and the stream reading phase. So they happen uh, concurrently. So all those uh, you know uh, problems are kind of solved. Also, you can trigger them interactively. So you can uh, interactively say, I want to capture this table customers and it will go and do this while it continues to read. From the transaction log so uh, yeah
0: so it's still very active i mean you could think it was just okay read that file and turn it into the format right and then spread that out to many databases but you're still actively improving the processing
1: oh yeah absolutely i i mean um there's so much things which still can and, and are being done like i mean new connectors are added all the time this snapshotting process is being reworked i'm sure there is Tons of things which can be improved still in terms of performance, like, you know, really making sure everything happens in parallel, all this kind of stuff. And then, of course, well, Debezium, uh, traditionally speaking, it just concerned itself with getting data out of a database into something like uh, Kafka, right, or, or Kinesis. But then, of course, you don't do this for just of the sake of putting your data into Kafka. You want to do something with it, right? So you need to take this data and put it elsewhere, as we as we discussed. And mm. Dubism, I mean, it just wasn't, and I would say, still isn't, really the scope of the project. But still, people came to the Dubism community and said, oh, "Okay, so how can we take now this data and put it into another database?" And this is why they just recently added a JDBC sync connector. So now there is also a sync connector which allows you to take the data from Kafka and put it into all kinds of databases which you can talk to via JPC. So like all of them, I guess. And, um, you know, this is very nice in terms of usability because things like the Stabilism UI, they can give you a complete end-to-end experience. Also, those connectors, they work very closely with each other. right? So I don't know if you were to use... um, could, uh, other, other, I should say, Conflict has a GBC connector, right? And there's other JPC sync connectors. You need to make sure they are like uh, 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 configured the correct way so that, you know, they um, work together. Whereas now here, as the museum is providing source and sync connector, all this gets very seamless. It can reason about schema changes and applying apply them to a sync database. So having this sync story, I think this is a huge value add to the project. And this by itself creates lots of new, uh, things to work on yeah
0: yeah even if it were exactly the same quality as all the others it comes with the same assumptions on the right end as the read end and that's going to make it easier right yeah exactly
1: exactly yes
0: so this is so that is it that that then gets into what you mentioned earlier where we're saying like you might want to do replicating oracle to mysql
1: Right, that it, it, exactly. It could could be uh, could be used uh, for that, right, in that uh, scenario. I just hear you holding your breath. As
0: you answer that question, do you think, is it a sane thing to do if I want, if that was my task, oh, yeah. I wanted to get Oracle into MySQL, could Bezium be a good choice?
1: Yeah, de- definitely. I mean, people do it, right? So maybe, the, I mean, I used to work in, in, in environments where you just wanted to have a database with the, I not know, the data from yesterday, so you could run some ad hoc queries or develop like your new functionality against it and, you know, get like execution plans and all this kind of stuff, not from the live database, but from this uh, other database. And yeah, sure. I mean, maybe you don't want to use like this super expensive database for that purpose. So you use another one. Um, I could see that and people definitely do that. Okay, okay, cool.
0: That sort of relates to one of the reasons I started thinking about, let's do an episode on Debezium. As I mentioned, we did this episode on uh, real-time um, data streaming and why we care okay. with Thomas Camp. And we were considering, like, if you've got an existing batch-based system stuff feeds into, let's say, MySQL, mm-hmm. 3 your website, you know, you know, standard architecture, and you want to say, I would like to get into real-time eventing, I can see some advantages to it, but change is expensive and new projects are risky, what's the minimum step I could take? Would that be just turning your database back into a real-time stream of events using Debezium? Is that a sane first step into the real-time world?
1: Mm, So I'm not quite sure whether I fully understand What do you ask? So you have a batch-based architecture, and and you want yeah, just
0: imagine a traditional stack that where there is MySQL at the Mm -hmm. the heart of it, and you're doing transactional updates to Mm -hmm. stuff, and you would like to start doing real-time notifications to clients or something. But you right. don't want to overhaul the entire oh, thing okay. and say, okay, let's have an 18-month project to do event right. systems right. that's going to actually take three years that's going to fail. Right. <laughs> is
1: Debezium yeah. your minimum oh, crack yeah. into yeah. the
0: world of real time?
1: Right. No, I think, yes, I think that's a fair assessment. Um, and people very commonly do that. And actually, often there is this uh, scenario, yes, they don't want to touch the source code of the application. Sometimes they cannot even touch the source code of the application. I mean, I remember yeah. at the past job, we had this war uh, or, or, or JAR running on our application server and nobody had the source code any longer. So <laughs> yeah. it, just, it was running just fine, but you couldn't change it because the source code was gone. So, it, you know, there's definitely this kind of world and sometimes people just shy away from it. Um, I mean, of course, you need to be careful about it, right? Because if you are in that sort of situation... Typically, your data model also is maybe in a bit of a non ideal state. And now the question is um, do you want to propagate that to like your new world, right? Uh, So maybe I know, maybe you want to use this for migrating off of a large monolithic application to microservices. That's definitely a common use case. But then maybe you want to, uh, you know, uh, shield those new microservices from all this weird legacy model. Let's say you have a database and there's like column names can only be like 30 characters. long. I mean, first, <laughs> there's such a database. So, um, you know, you want to have some sort of transformation layer in between oftentimes. And this is what people... Typical do with Kafka Connect for simple stuff, or maybe Kafka Streams or Apache Flink. So, you know, they can give a nice and clean view of the data. So that's the, you know, maybe they would like to limit stuff. They would like to rename things or change the types. I know maybe everything is a string in your old database. You would like to expose proper, t- uh, yes, <laughs> proper data. <laughs> stuff happens, right? So, yeah, yeah, um, I've seen it. I've seen it. We've all <laughs> seen, seen it. Yeah. Um, so having some sort of uh, transformation there, between like your old legacy world and the new world often makes sense. And that's the thing I would advise people to consider, not just to use CDC to expose the weird oddities, but make sure, you know, to put some consideration into this uh, to provide properly crafted data contracts. Yeah, data contracts is a thing, isn't it? I guess are right. that. Look, I'm working Tabisium, on a blog host, right now. <laughs> uh, <yeah.
0: So. laughs> you are a prolific blogger and we will link to your blog first. Oh yeah, that's But I guess what you're saying is that Debezium is a same way to turn a batch system into a series of real-time events, but then there's also the semantic journey. A, exactly. a series of JSON packets that say insert and update is not the same as an event system.
1: Yes, exactly. So um I mean, there's so many things to say about it, right? So first of all, there's, of course the question about granularity of events. Uh, so he, all, what uh, CDC does, it's about table, level or row level events, right? So but maybe I don't know you were to model your application in terms of domain driven design, you have something like aggregates um, and in a relational database, they would be persisted in multiple uh, tables, right? So let's say just a sing- simple example, a purchase order. And it has, you know, multiple order lines. So in your relational database, this was, would be stored in two uh, tables, one for order headers and one for order lines. And then there's a like a one-to-n relationship between the two. Oh, yeah. So now you would get those table-level events, but maybe what you actually would like to have is an entire event which describes the entire purchase order. Um, yeah. And now the question, of course, is how do you, uh, you know, achieve this task. And again, stream processing can help with that. So you could use something like Flink SQL for joining those raw streams and exposing a higher level stream, which then has like a nested data structure. There are things like the outbox pattern, which can help with that, um, but which then also would require, you know, to modify your application and actually emit those outbox events. So maybe in a legacy kind of use case, it's not desirable.
0: Uh, Yeah, the pain's got to go somewhere. Exactly right. (laughs) That does raise the question of um, how Debezium handles transactions. If I've got that order header and the individual Mm -hmm. order rows, am I going to get that as one transaction in the Debezium log output, Mm -hmm. whatever you call it? Right.
1: Um, great question. I, I love that. It's a, kind of my favorite thing. Uh, so no, <laughs> no, by default, I, I, what you get right now is um, you get those events one by one. So let's say you have your one purchase order and it has a three order lines. You would get those four events Typically, by the way, in Kafka on, on separate topics because there's a correlation between the table name and the topic name by default. Um, and also you wouldn't have like strong ordering guarantees. So it could oh. happen that you receive one of the order line events, then you consume the order header event and then you get the other two order line events. So, um, you know, you get them one by one, but still you can correlate them. And this is uh, possible because each of the events contain their the, the transaction ID where they um, are sourced from so you would see for all of your four events okay they are originating from transaction one two three and now what the also can give you is another topic which tells you about the transactions which have been executed so on that separate topic you would receive a message okay uh, or an event message um, an event sorry <laughs> transaction one to three has started and then you would receive another event which tells you okay transaction one to three has committed and by the way in this transaction there is one event for order headers and five events sorry three events for order lines So you have this information and now you could use all this to implement some sort of buffering logic, either in your sync system. So you could put the data into some sort of staging area and go, you know, and essentially just propagate the events once you know, okay, I've received all those four events, which I expect from that transaction. Or again, you could use something like Flink to implement this in a, a streaming fashion.
0: Yeah, there's, so there's a bit of legwork and almost detective work to reassemble what
1: those atoms of change right. mean semantically. Yes, exactly. I mean, the problem is, and people sometimes ask about it. So, hey, can't we get a single event for an entire transaction from Debezium? And the answer is, so yes, in theory, this could be possible, but transactions can be arbitrarily large, right? So they, Mm -hmm. you could do a bulk delete and delete 50 million records uh, from your database in a single transaction. And there's just no way we could give you any, a single event which describes 50 million records. So it would be yeah. just way too large.
0: Also, the, if we just go back to the simple order example, there's no guarantee they've got one transaction per order. Right? It could be batched up with lots of other things that happened in that transaction.
1: Yes, I- I exactly right. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yes, t- t- totally. So you would have to reason about it as well. Okay, why don't we? Why don't
0: we? As a slight aside, because um, I don't know that much about Flink, and I know it's now part of your day job at Decodable. Give me the overview of how you might recapture that order event in Flink.
1: Um. Yeah, that's that's a good question. So, how would it work? Well, I would essentially, um, you know, first of all, listen to this transaction topic, and then based on that, I would implement some sort of. Buffering logic, so I can have state stores in 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 Flink. And, and first of all, I wouldn't probably wouldn't be able to do it right now in Flink SQL, right? So I would have to do some Java programming. But so I could implement some buffering logic, um, which essentially compares those those events and sees, okay, um, you know, this this event is for for a specific transaction. I haven't received all of them yet, so I would need to put this into a state store. Um, and then, you know, more events come in and then you would be able at some point to see, okay, I've gotten all of them. So now I can actually go and emit um this, whatever the aggregated structure from that, that should be.
0: Okay. So you're writing a bit of Java that has to recreate that logic of grouping them back up
1: exactly right okay. and then of course if we wanted to abstract things a little bit we could say you know we could uh, think about having some sort of specific query operator in flink sql which would tell i don't know select transactionally from whatever uh, uh, stuff i do and then you know some let's say there was a managed platform like decodable uh, which could do that and um, this, this could be a functionality which we could provide
0: okay like do i get a slice of the royalties for giving you that idea Well,
1: (laughs) this idea might have been around before. Oh, okay. (laughs) Damn. I'll have
0: to keep working on that then.
1: (laughs) No, definitely. I mean, I can tell you uh, this is absolutely a very common need and scenario because just to make things tangible, people oftentimes uh, are in this sort of scenario when they want to put data into something like um, Elasticsearch. Because what happens there is, coming back to this purchase order example, you would Take the entire data from this purchase order and all its lines, and we we would like to put it into a single document in an Elasticsearch index, right? So you don't want to do query time joining, if you even can, I don't know. So you would like to have an entire order and all its associated data in a single document there. And now the question is, if you implement this um, as is with Flink or Flink SQL, well, the data would come in on those two source streams, orders and order lines, and then this join would run, but it would run whenever a new event is coming in. So essentially you would materialize this join when you have a, a single order line and you would put this into Elasticsearch. The next per, the next line comes in, so you would materialize it again and you would have an order with two out of three order lines. So you would have like a partially complete view on the world. Now, let's say the oh. user comes At this point in time, and they go to Elasticsearch and do a query, you know, depending on the specifics of of timing and so on, they would get like incomplete search results, right? So ideally, what those people want to do is they would only write to Elasticsearch once they know, okay, now this document actually is complete. And this is, uh, you know, the complete view of of this data. So this is a very common requirement. Um, And yes, using those transaction marker which we have in the bsum this is a way for for solving it and again by the way the stripe guys they spoke at flink forward about how they implemented that so it's already happening okay i'll have to link to that in the show notes
0: dig that one yeah, out yeah definitely it's again we're coming back to the old chestnuts of transaction boundaries normalization and denormalization
1: yes i mean yeah. it's the same same but different right yeah, <laughs> yeah, they are always with us <laughs> exactly yeah.
0: so um I, th- I think we should probably end on like, what's what tends to be the simplest use case that people start with, and what's the most ambitious or crazy use case you've seen? Okay, Maybe some
1: real world things to take this right. Hand. <laughs> I mean, most simple, definitely. I would say feeding data to OLAP or OLAP stores or or data warehouses. I feel like that's the that's the most common thing people would do. By the way, also, we didn't really touch on on, on latency and why it is so interesting to do this all in real time. So I know of people who take the data from the operational MySQL clusters and put them into uh, Google BigQuery so they can do analytics there. And they have an end-to-end latency of less than two seconds. So it's really like kind of instantaneous. And, you know, this opens up many interesting possibilities, right? So to be able to go to your data warehouse and have a live view the data, so you could drive dashboards off of that and, and all this kind of stuff. So, I would say that's like you know, the, the, the most common and I would say also simplest use case. Well, yeah. um, in terms of most complex, that's that's an interesting one. We have an interesting one, um, at uh, Decodable where we actually use it for propagating changes from our control plane database to our um data planes. You know, when people create like new things in, in Decodable, like a new connection, we would like to react to that. So we can then materialize the resources in our data plane So that's, I guess, is a bit more on the advanced. Because oh, you're doing and, like a software as a service, uh, Kubernetes. Exactly, yes. You
0: submit right. a request, it turns into running. Exactly, service, right. Yeah.
1: It should be like yeah, reli- yeah. reliable and, and, and all this kind of stuff. So um, And can we use uh, Dibesium for that. But then also there's this entire notion of, um, yes, we touched briefly on it, like migrating um, from a legacy application to maybe microservices or a new world of, of, of applications. Um, I think this is more advanced because it, has a strong notion of stream processing and like massaging the data, denormalizing it, putting it into new shapes. Um, sometimes people choose to use just something like Kafka Streams or Flink SQL to continuously ma- update uh, materialized views. Um, you know, so I don't know, maybe they want to have like the revenue per category in specific time windows and this should be updated in a, like a continuous fashion. Um, I guess it's also a bit more on the um, advanced side of things.
0: Okay, I'm, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to break my own rules. I'm allowed to because you. I know you did a talk about this as well, and you hinted about it. And we really shouldn't leave without discussing mention, this. Okay, <laughs> let, let me let me get going from a legacy system to a microservices system. Yes, I can. I can begin to see how that fits in. But you did a whole talk about it. I can't see. Give me a teaser on how the Beesium fits into when micro we're migrating to microservices
1: oh okay yeah yeah i'm so glad you asked um <laughs> <laughs> so there's an interesting pattern there which is called the strangler fig pattern strangler um, fig right so the idea yeah. is right <laughs> the idea is you know uh so there's the strangler fig plant and it kind of wraps and strangles and it, it, it's tree it's host tree and at some point this old tree um Dies off. I don't Does that make sense? I don't know. But so it's, you know, it strangles around that old thing and grows from there. And that that's kind of the picture uh, for that uh, migration um, approach. So the idea is you don't want to do like a huge big bang migration where you, as you say, you work on this for three years and it takes another three years and then it fails. So rather, you want to go gradually and, you know, you want to reduce the risk and you want to go step by step. So yeah. the idea is you take One chunk of your functionality. Maybe you start with a single view in your web application. I don't know, like the order history view. So that's the thing you want to serve from a new, you know, shiny microservice written in... Closure, I don't know, (laughs) something (laughs) like that. Um, And so you start to uh, extract this functionality uh, from the Monolith into your new uh, microservice. It's its own thing. And of course, this should now have its own state store. It should have its own database, right? So you don't really want to share data stores Across uh, service boundaries, um, so you would have it would have its own uh, data store, and then you would use uh, CDC to propagate all the writes, which and, and at this point still go to the old uh, models. So you would go propagate all the changes from there over to this new database of the new microservice, and then in front of everything you would have a routing component, which essentially says, okay. This is a read request for the order history view. So I sent this over to the microservice and let it serve from there. And everything else should still be served from, from the monolith. So all, all you know, all the other reads, all the writes for that part of the domain, they still go to the to the monolith. But I have this read functionality which already is served from the new service. And you use okay. CDC to you know gradually Extract data from the old database to the new one, keep them in sync, and then you could, you would keep going, right? So you would extract more functionality. At some point, you would say, okay, I, everything which is related to purchase orders, this should now be owned by this new closure service, or I don't know. Elm or, or, or or Zik, what's your favorite language these days? So, uh, (laughs) let's say Haskell. We don't mention Haskell. Yeah, right. So this is new Haskell service. (laughs) Does anybody build web service in Haskell? I don't know. But so you you do. Okay. So you have this new Haskell (laughs) service for purchase orders. And, you know, this receives now reads and writes for that part of the domain. Yeah. But then it could still be you have functionality in the old. Uh, application context which needs to know about purchase orders right so essentially now you could say okay i also propagate changes from purchase orders back to the old world so we can you know i don't know reference the data there and so on and so you would do kind of do it like a bi-directional but you would just have to make sure you know that for each part of your domain for each table essentially or each aggregate i don't know there's one system which is in charge right so you what you would should want what you should avoid is like having rights to i don't know customers or purchase orders on both sides of this architecture because then you would end up like propagating them forth and back in cycles and it would be kind of weird
0: Yeah, yeah, you end up with a reconciling multiple master databases problem, which is always horrible.
1: Exactly, so you you shouldn't do that. But otherwise, Haskell for your web services, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to do a whole episode on that because it's very nice. Oh, yeah.
0: I will watch it. (laughs) Maybe I'll do a coding walkthrough or something. But okay, okay, we'll link to the full talk, but that gives me the picture. And I like incremental migrations. Big Bang projects (laughs) are often disaster yes,
1: absolutely it's it's a nightmare right and then it, and, and with that um approach you can you know you can go at your own pace you can pause maybe at some point you realize okay i'm happy if i've just extracted those uh, three things into their own services and the rest can remain in the old system so you can do that um so it's really it's about minimizing risk right so you don't want to change everything at once um and then nothing would work maybe so it's about risk management yeah
0: and is that the kind of way you'd is that the best way to get into using debesium in a system would you say like let's just choose one small
1: piece and pick it off i would say so yeah i mean definitely i'm always a big fan of you know just taking the something be Debezium or whatever technology and apply it for one part of your problem space and see how it works get a feel for it and then you'll realise how amazing it is. And then you, you know, use it for everything. (laughs) I think that's a perfect tagline to end the episode. (laughs) Absolutely. Awesome. Gunnar, thanks very much for joining us. Absolutely. It was a great pleasure, Chris. Um, Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Gunnar. Now, we dropped quite a few
0: references in that discussion, so I'll compile them all together and you'll find the links in the show notes as usual. I'm gonna add in another link there. We kind of touched on in that discussion why you can't just use SQL polling to get real-time data out of a database. You do have to look at the transaction log if you don't want to lose data. If you'd like some more detail on that, there's a really good talk by a former guest of ours, Francesco Tissio, and he can tell you some horror stories from just relying on JDBC. So check that out if you want the full argument. As well as that sort of back reference, I'll give you a forward reference as well. We need to have an episode on Apache Flink, and it is in the pipeline. So if you want to catch that, now's a great time to click subscribe and notify. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to like it, rate it, maybe share it with a friend. You know where to find the buttons, so I leave you to it. Until next week. I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Gunnar Morning. Thanks for listening.